The text for Pastor John's message today is found in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into the bondage of sin. For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. So, Father, here we are now, midway in this worship time, ready to worship over your word. Worship in hearing, worship in preaching, worship in understanding, worship in tasting, worship in savoring, worship in resolving, worship in repenting, worship in longing. Worship in feeling wretched. Worship in feeling delivered from wretchedness. Would you receive the worship of these next moments, O God? Grant me to be faithful to your word, true to your word. Guard this people from error. Guard us as a church. Deliver us from all evil. Fill this place with your presence now. Teach us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's aim in these verses 14 to 25 of Romans 7 is to support the teaching of Romans up to this point, specifically to support this truth. The law of God, the Mosaic law, given at Mount Sinai, and the law in its expression written across every human heart is powerless, powerless, to declare you righteous before God, and to make you righteous before God. It's written to support that. 
We're all sinners. Chapter 3, verse 9, I have already declared that Jew and Greek are all under the power of sin. Therefore, when the law of God comes to us, it condemns and it provokes rebellion in sinners. It does not declare us righteous and it doesn't make us righteous. So the point of the book of Romans is that negatively so far and then positively, how do you get right? How you, how do you get declared right? You'll notice I'm distinguishing between the declaration of my right standing before God and the making me good and Christ-like. How do you get declared righteous? Answer, not according to works of the law, but by faith in what was provided through Jesus Christ alone. A life of perfection and a death sufficient to cover all my failures. Faith makes me have a right standing with God. And how do you become good? How do you begin to get conformed to the image of Jesus? Chapter 7, verse 4. Die to the law. Be united to him who is raised from the dead that you may bear fruit for God. So the negative word goes out. Turn away from the law to get justified. Turn away from the law to get sanctified. And now, chapter 7 is written to support all that. How? By answering the manifest objection. You nullify the law. Your doctrine, Paul, nullifies the law. He's already dealt with it. Chapter 3, verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? His answer, absolutely not. We establish the law. Now in chapter 7, he raises the problem again. Verse 7. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? Somebody was telling Paul he made the law out to be sin. Sounds like it, sort of. Chapter 7, verse 13. He raises another objection. Did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Sounds like you make the law out to be a poison killer. You say you got to turn away from the law to get justified? You say you got to die to the law to get sanctified? You make the law out to be sin and death. And Paul's answer is, I do not. And he writes chapter 7 to defend against that objection. If that objection holds, his gospel goes. And if he can answer that objection, his gospel stands. That's what chapter 7 is about. But now here's a crucial question. Here's where we are. That was all last week. Here's where we are. Very practical question. In fact, I'll end up telling you a story about J.I. Packer's life, which shows how utterly, radically practical what I'm about to say is to keep you from suicide and to give you hope. Here's the crucial question. Why did Paul go about defending the law in chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, this odd way? It's strange. By describing a man's experience, his own, it sounds like, a divided man. 
Verse 19, you see the divided man. The good that I want, I do not do. But I do, I practice the very evil that I do not want. Now, how does this long, drawn-out description of this man's turmoil, notice the turmoil, verse 24, wretched man that I am, how does that help answer his question? How does that answer the objection? You make the law to be sin. You make the law to be death. If you would get the law right, Paul, and stop directing people away from the law and put them under the law, you might get something better than verse 19. Now, I've just tipped my hand, haven't I? And I, in order to answer this crucial question, how does this work? How is he really answering the objection? I need to tell you where I stand on the issue I raised last week. Here was the issue. Some people take verses 14 to 25 and they say, this applies to the pre-Christian Paul. And he's talking about himself before he was converted. This kind of turmoil, this kind of wrestling, that's pre-Christian wrestling. Read perhaps through Christian eyes. That's one view. And a lot of very godly interpreters hold that view. Friends of mine. And then the other view says, no, this is actually a description of Paul's present experience as a believer. Not a pre-converted, pre-Christian Paul, but a, a Christian Paul. All right. I agree with number two there. I've said it. That's my position, and it will take some weeks to defend it. I'm not going to defend it this morning, except indirectly. I'm going to explain it. I want you to understand the position, and then i got about ten reasons for why I believe it. And we'll take some of those in the, in the weeks to come. But I want you to understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. So let's just dwell for a moment on what I'm not saying when I say what you've just heard read from Ben... Verses 14 to 25, I regard as Paul describing his own Christian experience. I do not mean that we should settle in or coast with worldly living and a defeatist mentality about sin. I don't mean that. I don't mean that you should make peace with sin. I think the text teaches you to make war with sin. And get up when you get knocked down. Defeat is not the only thing in this text. And I don't believe defeat is the main experience of the Christian life, I just believe it is an absolutely inescapable part of the Christian life. And I don't think there's a single person in this room who hasn't tasted it in the last 48 hours. In fact, I'll tell you how far I go on my sober view of my nature and yours. I don't think there's a good deed you have ever performed in your life for which you did not have to repent. I said good deed. 
In other words, I don't think there is perfect motivation in this world. I think everything you do is tainted by sin. And therefore, the life you live should be a life of continual repentance and embracing of the glorious gospel of an alien righteousness, which alone will give you standing with God. There's nobody in this room who does enough good deeds to get you right with God or keep you right with God. Or does good deeds that are pure enough in the way they come from your heart and what they're aiming toward that they could ever qualify as holy enough not to be burned up if God were not a God of mercy. That's how far I would take that statement of sober assessment. Now, J.I. Packer, I'm going to tell you his story at the end of the sermon in a few minutes, but I want to give a quote here because I read an article. He wrote an article two years on this, two years ago on this text, The Wretched Man, Who Is He? On this question I raised last week. And I'll give you his summary statement. I think it's very good. It's exactly where I am. I've been here for 25 years. I've tried to change my mind. I cannot change my mind. I'm willing to change my mind. I don't think my salvation or yours hangs on whether you change your mind one way or the other on this. But you're going to hear why I believe this is really relevant where you come down. Makes a difference. Not an eternal one, probably, unless you really go wacko in your perfectionism. Here's what Packer said. Paul is not telling us that the life of the wretched man is as bad as it could be, only that it is not as as good as it should be. That's good. And, he says, that because this man, this wretched man, delights in the law and longs to keep it perfectly, His continued inability to do so troubles him acutely. The wretched man is Paul himself spontaneously voicing his distress at not being able to be a better Christian than he is. And all we know of Paul personally fits in with this supposition. Close quote. I think that's exactly right. I think that's right. So, here's what I'm not saying. I'm still clarifying now. I'm still on clarification. I am not saying that Christians live in continual defeat, nor do I think these verses teach that. I don't think Christians live in continual defeat. But, no Christian lives in continual victory, nor ever will, till Jesus comes or you die. That's my firm conviction. And I think the opposite leads to great distress and suicidal thoughts and much discouragement and probably more bad works than good works. Now, that means that I'm saying that all Christians come to moments and times in their life when sin gets the upper hand and they fall into it. And what this text shows is not that you can escape that, but what you should sound like when it happens. So if you wonder, how can I know if I'm a Christian then? Well, I'll tell you how you should sound 
And I'll get it straight out of the text. You should sound three notes. One, verse 22. I love your law, O God. I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. I'll tell you, the man of the flesh. The man that is pure flesh. Only flesh. Chapter 8, verse 9. Cannot say that. Cannot mean that. In my inner self, I love your law. Say that when you sin. Secondly, say, I hate what I just did. I hate what I just what just came out of my mouth. Where'd that come from? Ah! I get that from verse 15. I am doing the very thing I hate. And I think that hatred is a godly thing. That's a spirit-wrought thing. That's a Christian thing, that hatred. Thirdly, say, oh, wretched piper. Oh, wretched. And then, and then say, and here I'm going to tip another hand about my interpretation of verse 24, and we'll have to come back to it in weeks to come because I'm not going to, def- I'm not going to defend it. Who Who is going to set me free? Who will, I take this future tense very seriously, who will set me free from the body of this death? I do not think that's the voice of an unbeliever saying, who's going to get me saved? I think that's the voice of a Christian saying, come Lord Jesus, wrap it up and deliver me from this brother ass. That's what C.S. Lewis called his body. Brother ass. Gotta walk that thing over the head with a two by four to get it to move two steps toward holiness. (laughs) Deliver me. I'm tired of pummeling my body. I'm tired of struggling with homosexuality. I'm trying to, tired of trying to be a single chase person all my life. I'm tired of Trying to contain this tongue. If the Bible says if I could just get this thing under control, it'd be like a rudder and I could direct the whole ship and I can't even manage this small little member called my tongue. I'm always criticizing. I'm always complaining. I'm always murmuring. I'm always self-pitying. God, I wish I were delivered. I think that's the way Paul felt. I mean, when he said, I die daily. I pummel my body to keep it under control lest I myself would be a castaway after preaching the gospel. You think that was fun? You think he didn't want out of this? A Christian wants to be perfect and knows he won't be in this world. And therefore wants Jesus to come back. That's why we do First Tuesday fasts. And don't you get any ideas about suicide. You don't play that game with God. God will tell you how long you're to fight. And I know a missionary who used to be a missionary, and some of you know who I'm talking about, who told me after he left his wife, he said, I just got tired of fighting. I just got tired of fighting. Me. Don't get tired. It's your badge. It's your badge. I'm a Christian. I fight. I get up. I get up. 
when I get knocked down. So, nobody should take me to mean here that we make peace with sin. You know what I'm concerned about? You might say, aren't you concerned about producing a church full of wretched people? Wretched man that I am. Everybody feels wretched on a Sunday morning. Everybody feels wretched on Monday morning. Wretched, wretched, wretched. All you ever produce here is wretchedness. I said, I'm a little bit concerned about that. Not much. I'm way more concerned about producing a church full of pasted smiles and hypocrites and lies. That's what I'm concerned about. People who in their small groups look like they don't have any problems. I never see anything nasty. I never have any lustful thoughts. I'm never tempted to steal. I don't ever lie on my tax report. I'm Christian. Romans 7 is about pre-Christian. I must be careful here. Because the people who believe that don't talk like that. That was me talking. I'm very concerned about that kind of church because I don't want to be in one. And I don't want to be the pastor of pasted smiles. Chipper superficiality. Blindness to our own failures. You know what that produces? Hypercriticism. Judgmentalism. If you don't feel wretched Often enough, with a spiritual, godly, spirit-wrought wretchedness that moves quickly out into the embrace of justification by faith and comfort in an alien righteousness, if you don't move through that rhythm of gospel brokenness in life, often enough, you know what happens? You pick on everybody. Look how she dresses, and look how he fixes his hair, and look at that stuff they do with their kids, and look at, look at, look at, look at, look at, look at. And he'll say, would you stop that? I mean, Paul wrote the whole second chapter for people like that. I don't want that to be, I don't want to be like that, I'm prone to be like that. That's where I say, wretched piper. So, I feel strongly about the way this describes Christian experience. Let's go back to our crucial question. What was it? You've forgotten. I'll tell you what it was. The crucial question was, why is Paul doing it this way? Why is he defending the law against this objection that you've made the law to be sin, you've made the law to be death? Why are you going about it with this long, drawn-out discussion of this divided Man, how does dealing with this imperfect Christian, Paul, and his relation to the law help you defend the law so that your doctrine of justification by faith alone will stand? That's my question. One more question to answer. Now, to see how he's thinking, put yourself in the position of his opponent. And think of the objections you'd begin to raise, not just about the law and the pre-Christian person, but the law and the Christian person. Think of the objections you'd start to raise. And you, here's, what, here's what I think you'd think. Hmm. Paul, you said you've got to die to the law to bear fruit for God. 
So you think the key to a life of changed love and godliness is to die to the law. I think you're dead wrong, Paul. I think you better call people to come alive to the law, submit themselves to the law, get under the law. And then, Paul, you know why I think that? Because all you get is verse 19. What I want to do, I I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. That's what you get. That's what you get. That's where your doctrine leads. I've been watching the church at Corinth, Paul. I've been watching the church at Laodicea. You know what they say about the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3.17? Poor, blind, wretched, lame. That's the description of the church at Laodicea. I'm watching those, Paul. And you know what? That's what your doctrine produces. I think that's what he's got to deal with. Got to deal with that. I'm watching Bethlehem. In fact, I'm watching those guys and their internet. I'm watching what those women eat on the sly. I'm watching these things. That's what you get, Piper, when you preach justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. I'll tell you how to fix that. Get them under the law. Get them under the law. Then you'll have some real victory in this church. I think that's what he's got to deal with. It won't, it won't, it won't solve the problems for him to just deal with the issue of the law before Christianity sh- comes on the scene. He's got to deal with the issue of the law after Christianity arrives in a church. And he does. That's one of the big reasons I believe this is about Christian experience. J.I. Packer said that it would be a very big hole in his argument if he didn't tackle the issue of the Christian and the law and just talked about the non-Christian and the law. The big issue is, what should Christians feel and do with the law? Is your whole attitude to the law, Paul, causing all this turmoil of wretchedness? Now, quick, an answer. What's his answer? Here's his approach. I'll give, just sum it up here and we'll be done with this illustration at the end. He gives four pairs of statements. One part of the pair is to say, no, we Christians esteem the law, love the law, concur with the law, delight in the law. You're getting us all wrong. And the second part of the statement is, we don't blame the law for our failure. We blame indwelling sin. Now, let me give you the pairs that show you that. Verse 14, first esteem for the law. We know that the law is spiritual. And then second, acknowledgement of indwelling sin. But I am carnal. I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Now, that right there is one of the biggest arguments for those who take the other view than I do. They'd say, a Christian just can't say that. A Christian cannot say, I'm sold into bondage to sin. Not after chapter 6 where it says, we were in bondage to sin and now we've been set free and made slaves of God and righteousness. This is just proof positive this is not a Christian talking. So, you've got to come back in the future weeks because I will directly address that and try to show you, to my mind, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that the New Testament itself shows you can talk that way about a believer. Second pair, verse 16. 
But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So he's saying Christians believe this. They endorse this. They esteem the law. And then he says in verse 17, the other side, namely there's indwelling sin. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Notice those words, sin which dwells, takes up its residence, houses. So when you hear the phrase indwelling sin, don't think any theologian just kind of made that up. That comes from the word dwell in verse 17 and the word dwell in the verse 20. I'll read verse 20. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which is dwelling dwells in me. That is a absolutely profound truth that J.I. Packer almost died to find. I'll tell you that story in just a minute. Pair number three, Romans 7.22. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. See, I don't think an unbeliever talks that way. I concur with the law. I'm not making fun of the law. I'm not calling the law sin. I'm not saying the law is death. I concur joyfully with the law of God. I endorse the law. I pursue the law. Yes, through the back door of my relationship with the risen Christ, by the Spirit, not head on as the decisive way of justification or sanctification, but I wind up in the house. I support the law. And then he says, verse 23, the other side of that pair. But I see a different law in my members, in my body, waging war against the law of my mind. Making me a prisoner of the law of sin. Now that's indwelling sin there. The law of sin is another word, another name for indwelling sin. The law of sin which is in my members. Final pair. Esteem for the law. Verse 25 in the middle. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. And then he says, last thing he says, but on the other hand with my flesh. He has already said, I'm carnal. So here's the the downside of his division and the result of indwelling sin. With my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So his answer to the objection is two, twofold. One, Christians love the law. They endorse the law. They esteem the law. They delight in the law. They concur with the law. And Christians also believe and know that in them there is what is called indwelling sin that must be warred against. Now here's the closing illustration. I said this was practical. I said it had to do with suicide. In 1944, J.I. Packer, who teaches theology at Regent College in Canada, Vancouver, was a student at Oxford University in Corpus Christi College. He was studying Latin and Greek. He was not a believer. He had promised somebody who witnessed to him that he would go to a... uh, It was called the Oxford Christian Union. And there, a no-name man, Earl Langston, preached a sermon, and Packer says, the scales fell from my eyes, and I saw the way in. And then the battle started. Because surrounding him in those days were a lot of perfectionist teachers. You can put names on this. I won't do it, because I don't want to 
unduly offend. You can put names on these kinds of teachings. Perfectionist teachings. And they were saying to him, you can have an experience called sanctification by faith. Now, I tremble because I use that phrase and I do not mean this by it. I love that phrase, sanctification by faith. But what was meant by it 40 years ago at Oxford was a second crisis experience. And once you've had it, kind of a bump up to a new level, no more struggle in the Christian life. That was the teaching. No more struggle after you get sanctified by faith. You rise to a new victorious level of living. The Holy Spirit fills you and you are above the battle. Let go and let God. And he almost committed suicide. He says that. I've heard him tell the story in person. I've read it in two books. He said, I almost committed suicide because, number one, I had a very sensitive conscience. And number two, I know I will never be perfect. I just won't. I just won't. So I'm going to blow my brains out. And you know what saved him? Romans 7 saved him. But it was through John Owen and J.C. Ryle, two old-fashioned teachers, John Owen, Volume 6, Volume 7 of his works. They're in our bookstore. At least they were after the first service. (laughs) All of them about indwelling sin. It's the name of one of the essays. Indwelling sin. And then Ryle on holiness. And he said, they rescued me from the overheated holiness teachings that I was about to be killed by. And I just want to close here by saying, I hope you get hope from this. Because I don't, I want you to find your way between two extremes. One extreme is the hopelessness of perfectionism. We lift the, the, the level of demand in the Christian life so high that you know in reality you have never, do not now, nor ever will in this life attain perfect motivation for every perfect deed. And therefore you want to blow your brains out because there's just no hope of living the Christian life. And I want to protect you from the other kind of hopelessness which says all there is is defeat. Defeat, defeat, defeat. There is no progress. There's no victory. There is no hope for any change in your life. And you say, well, if that's true, I may as well blow my brains out too. And I want to say the Christian life is a life of massive hope. And the hope is grounded in two things. One, it's a hope that we are justified by virtue of Christ's righteousness, not our own. And his is perfect. And by faith, we cleave to him. And in him, we become the righteousness of God. And secondly, Little by little, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we do begin to change. And there are enough echoes of love in our lives. And I don't know how far you can go. I just know it's farther than you think you can go. And therefore, never make peace with sin ever, ever, ever. Let's pray. Oh God, dismiss us now. I pray with the balance of war against these two forms of hopelessness. And if anybody came into this room today feeling hopeless because they only know defeat or because they can't be perfect, I pray, oh God, you would bring them out of total defeat into the Christian walk and 
down from vaunted, hypocritical perfection into the Christian walk. And that you would show your grace sufficient for our lives as we rest in Christ. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen. You're dismissed.